Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. So Avi, we, we begin this Parsha with B'nai Yisrael leaving Mitzrayim and there are a variety of very back and forth situations. And I'll clarify what I mean by that. B'nai Yisrael leaves and <clears throat> right in the beginning, it's very clear that Hashem sends them in a different direction so that they will not become overwhelmed and fearful. And right after that, we have uh, Paro coming and uh, chasing them and protecting them. And then we have the splitting of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Mitzrim. And B'nai Yisrael is so grateful and so moved that we have Az Yashir Moshe and of course in that we have a celebration of the might and amazement and wonder of Hashem and really it's it's a wonderful uh, gratification and, and sanctification of not only what has been done so far but it is mentioned of what will happen in regards to uh, B'nai Israel returning home. And then we move into a variety of B'nai Israel asks for water, B'nai Israel asks for food, and it's all received as B'nai Israel is complaining to Moshe. And what's kind of unique is both sides of that, where on the one hand, we have Hashem realizing that B'nai Yisrael needs some hand-holding and needs some support and help, in many ways not so dissimilar from what Moshe required. And yet, on the other hand, we don't hear of B'nai Yisrael having water and then complaining, or necessarily having food and then complaining. But instead we receive that as complaints. So help me understand and help us understand about, on the one hand, Hashem is very careful to hold their hands. And on the other hand, they ask for it and it's received as complaining, but it wasn't provided, at least not according to the text that we have. So I think that when we look at what it is that Hashem gives them and what it is that Hashem makes them ask for, there's a couple different ways we can look at it. One way is to say that Hashem was trying to wean them off the idea of having everything handed to them. 
And so on the one hand, we see that sure enough, they get to the water at Mara and it is bitter. And so they complain, they want water that doesn't taste bad. And so Moshe provides that. Then they want food. And so Moshe provides man. Uh, and then they need water, and Moshe hits the rock, and they get fresh water. And so, just like you might have a young child who says, Mom, Dad, I need this, and you give it to them. Mom, Dad, I need this. At some point, you want to make that child more independent, and you say, Honey, you know where we keep the cups. You know where we keep the water. Go ahead and get yourself a cup of water. And if they can't reach the cups, you still have to help them get those down, but then it's okay to have them go get the water for themselves. It's teaching independence. So that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it might be that we're really talking about legitimate complaints versus not so legitimate complaints, right? Asking for what you need can be a, a, a learning moment in and of itself. And so having them learn to ask is important. And if what they're asking for is legitimate, like, please give us fresh water, please give us fresh food, those are legitimate things to ask for. Now, some of our commentaries teach us that those weren't quite as legitimate things to ask for because they had some of those things, that they actually had food. Um, and we know this because when the Jewish people go into the land of Israel, Years later, it says they had all of this cattle and all of these sheep. And well, where did those come from? Well, they had taken them out with them from Egypt. In fact, they had taken many things with them out from Egypt. But they didn't want to use those things. Uh, and in fact, they make reference to the flesh pots of Israel. Oh, I'm sorry, the flesh pots of Egypt that had been there for them, where they didn't have to use anything that belonged to them, in part because nothing belonged to them because they were slaves. But finally, I want to look at this idea of what is a legitimate complaint and what is not. And sometimes the real difference between what is a legitimate request and what is a complaint is the way that you ask, right? And so if we look at the very first complaint where Ben Israel are saying, here is this water and it's so bitter we can't even drink it, right? God doesn't seem to get angry. Moshe doesn't seem to get upset they recognize that this is a legitimate complaint. And so they find uh, a type of wood that can go in the water that changes how the water tastes. And yet later on, whether those needs are legitimate or not, sometimes the way that the Jewish people ask can really be in a way that is a complaint rather than a request or need. And so one of the other pieces to look at is and to think about is when we ask for things or complain about things, which one is it? Are we asking, whether it be God, whether it be our parents, whether it be friends, whether it be our boss, are we asking them for things that are legitimate and that we really need? And how are we asking them for it? Versus are we complaining? And even when those things that we need are legitimate, complaining about them may not be as effective as just asking for them in a forthright manner. But that sort of takes me to a question I have for you, Akiva, which is, 
the Jewish people go from being slaves to being free. And as we say on Pesach, Dayenu, maybe that should have been enough. But then Hashem gives them food, Hashem gives them water, and yet they still seem to continue over and over again to be really looking for more. And we know that one of the pros and cons of being a human being is our adaptability. Right? We can go from a terrible situation and get used to that to a phenomenal situation and get used to that. And that may lead to complaints of the variety sometimes known as first world problems. You know, why don't we have flying cars yet? Why doesn't my cell phone work in tunnels? Why can't I get a better connection over the internet? Um, are these legitimate problems? Are these not? And how does our ability to adapt and get used to certain things impact possibly this Parsha and us as human beings in general? Well, thank you for, for answering that piece, because I think it does bring a lot of clarity and, and really helps me to answer your question, which is, <clears throat> I think on the broader spectrum, how do we find out if a complaint is valid and validate those which are and not invalidate, but redirect, let's say, those complaints that are perhaps less than appropriate, let's call them. And I think the the first piece that I'm going to touch on is the fact that, you know, I see a lot of people who, they have a lot of good stuff. They, they can't complain as far as they have a home, they have food on the table, they have uh, a, a safe job, they make a decent living. And they come to me and they say, why, why am I depressed? I have nothing to be depressed about. So clearly I couldn't be depressed. And what's very common with these individuals is they still have depression. And it begs the question, well, you know, we're taught, how could you have this? How could you, you have nothing to complain about. Everything should be perfect. And so I think in some ways it's an acknowledgement of you may still have something that's not right in your life, be it uh, medical, psychological, um, be it something that's just not where your goals are set for. And I think sometimes those who complain of the, quote, first world problems can sometimes feel guilty about expressing those problems and those needs. And, and I love that you brought up the, how do I ask? So when we consider whether or not an individual has room for complaints, one of the things we want to bear in mind is that we don't want them to necessarily be deciding based on a comparison to where they are versus someone else. And that's the whole idea of the keeping up with the Joneses, right? We always have to have a little bit more. We always have to do this. We have to do that because that's what our neighbors are doing. That's what these are doing. That's what they're doing. And that creates chronic difficulties in establishing what's really going on in your own life and where you are when you're always comparing yourselves to others. Because the truth is, is that someone who has seemingly everything can still have legitimate difficulties and legitimate issues to have to deal with, which is 
why we have the other catchphrase, more money, more problems, which in some ways could be perceived as just an excuse. And in other ways, I'm sure that we all can relate to the individual we met who seemed to have no difficulties because they had everything. And they would talk about how their marriage is falling apart or how their business partner is hurting them or how they have no time to be in their family's life. And so there's a variety of different things where everybody really needs to be comparing themselves to themselves. And I think in that regard, we can look at B'nai Yisrael and we can exactly utilize what you suggested, which is we're not comparing B'nai Yisrael to the Mitzrim. We're not comparing B'nai Yisrael to any of the other nations. We're comparing them to themselves. And so we're seeing why there's that complaint component. And so, again, I appreciate the way that you answered because it really gave that answer in and of itself, which is what are you finding is a difficulty and are you evaluating for yourself whether it's a difficulty and how are you going to manage that difficulty and how are you going to discuss and ask about it? And I think that by that nature, we can kind of change the idea of what is a legitimate complaint versus what is a non-legitimate complaint to a where are you at and what is getting in the way of what you want. Uh, Avi, in last week's Parsha, we have an introduction of Rosh Chodesh, and then we have an introduction of Pesach. And now in this week's Parsha, we have a, let's call it a reintroduction, because of, we do mention about Shabbat in Brayshit, but here we have a, a bit more of a, this is what we need to do to make sure that we have adequately prepared for Shabbat. And what's kind of strikes me is, is there method and what is that method to the order in which we have some of these mitzvot start to be explained to us that we continue to hold? So I think if we look at last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha, what we're seeing is a chronological uh, accounting. In other words, God says, HaChodesh HaZelachem, this month shall be for you. So in other words, you must set up calendars that have months, that have weeks, that uh, therefore will, will create years. Um, and once you have a calendar in place and you now have this event, called Yitziat Mitzrayim, you're going to celebrate it every year by doing the following. And then they get out into the desert and they hit that first Friday and it's, oh yes, Shabbat. Now you've had the idea of Shabbat before as a day of rest because it appeared in Breshit. But here's how you're going to do it. And the idea that you're going to get double man on that day, on the Friday before, so that on Shabbat you won't have to collect. Later on, um, when the Chagim are presented to us, and it is part of the Torah reading that we do every time we read, uh, we, we reach one of the Chagim, we see that those Chagim usually, that, that Torah reading usually starts with the with Shabbat, 
and then it goes into the other holidays that are biblical. And the rabbis teach us that the reason it is set up that way when they are all presented together is because Shabbat is the model for all other holidays. Shabbat sort of has the sets of rules of what you can do and what you can't do, and the other holidays play off of that. Oh, they're like Shabbat, except you can do this. They're like Shabbat, except you can't do that. Um, and so Shabbat, in many ways, is the model of what we can do. But in this case, I think what we're seeing is a chronological presentation of the events that happened to them, rather than a overarching model of, here are the holidays you as Jewish, as the Jewish people are going to have, and here is what you should do on them. So Avi, I'm going to throw a, a step further and say, so if we're suggesting that it's just a chronological discussion, where's the lesson? So I think the lesson is connected to what we are told about each of those. In other words, when we get to the idea of Rosh Chodesh, we're told you're setting up Rosh Chodesh this very first time because you should have months and you should have specific way of counting, right? We have a cycle that is neither truly lunar nor solar, but rather a mixture of the two by saying that we are going to count lunar months, but at the same time, uh, Pesach needs to be in the spring, and therefore you're going to have to adjust for the solar calendar. Similarly, with Pesach, it is saying, yes, you have this model of what Pesach is going to be, but here are the things you are going to do based on what has just happened to you. And finally, here with Shabbat, the idea of, yes, it's a day of rest, and you knew what a day of rest meant, but we're even going to take it to the extreme where even food preparation is something that you're not going to do on Shabbat. You're going to have double of what you need on Friday in order to be able to have Shabbat on on Saturday really be a day of rest for you. And so I think there are individual lessons we can learn from each of these stories without them specifically being um, within the overarching framework. Kiva, at the end of this week's Parsha, Bnei Israel is attacked by Amalek, and our rabbis bring up the question of whether Amalek is a very specific series of people, a nation, or whether it is a specific type of action or activity that makes someone part of Amalek. Uh, one of the examples of this is Haman, right, that Haman may or may not have been genetically connected to Amalek, but certainly his actions seem to put him in the same uh, same category. And so my question for you is, are there people that are bad, or is it simply people is it simply people's choices and their behaviors? that are bad. Oh. I'm reminded of the Stanford prison experiment when you ask me about that. 
and it's it was a fascinating study done back in uh, Palo Alto, and they basically took a bunch of individuals and they set up a, mi a mini prison system, and they set up that some of the people who were in the study were guards, and the others were prisoners, and very very quickly both groups adapted to whatever role they were given people who maybe were never controlling or domineering before who were placed in the role of the prison guard became very controlling and domineering and by the way this should not be perceived as a critique in any way of the prison system not talking about that at all just talking about this particular study and individuals who were the quote prisoners were finding in themselves a very meek presentation so much so that the study actually i believe was cut off early because of the massive change in behaviors that both groups had so readily and this was exactly that question of is it a behavior or is it the person? And I think in some ways it is very much a I think it's more nurture than nature and certainly there have been arguments on both sides and and there's i'm sure still a lot of research to be done and a lot of questions that are unanswered but i am happy to give my current understanding of that question which is that you know a lot of times it really is based on what we experience what is our environment how do we learn to navigate things and in what ways do we then take that information and carry it forward to the next thing? Now, as I'm saying that, I'm saying that's the argument for nature or nurture. What about the argument for nature? What about the argument for are there some people who are just, quote, bad people? Um, I, I suppose I would rather look at that and say, well, is it bad? Is there perhaps a psychopathology that we for a long time have referred to as classically bad and rather maybe it's a psychiatric condition? And, and in ways that I'm looking at that, I'm more so looking at the, we have this whole category of illnesses called personality disorders it's a terrible name, and I think it's a terrible name because it kind of characterizes uh, something that we colloquially use as a disorder. And classically, these are very difficult to treat. They're also very difficult for, for many, pro many mental health professionals to diagnose and then tell the individual that this is the diagnosis. I'm sure you can imagine telling somebody they have a personality disorder just doesn't roll off the tongue in the way that you want to have it sound. So when we look at those, 
we do see that there is a significant heritability, a significant genetic component to some of those diagnoses, which would certainly beg the question of how much of this is nature versus nurture. And even more so, there are studies that have done twin studies where they've looked at identical twins and how they may have been separated. And in fact, we see significant behaviors that develop despite the environment because of the nature, the genetic component. So now that I've given you a completely convoluted answer of are there bad people or bad behaviors, I think that I would bring that question back to you, Avi, in regards to the, we end the, the, the Parsha with, again, this, this cryptic piece of Hashem will have you, have Moshe write a remembrance that Hashem will erase the memory of Amalek and that Hashem continues a battle with Amalek from generation to generation. So if we go along the lines, which I like where you're going with this, of the idea that Amalek may be more of a characteristic or a description than a particular nation, is this perhaps a component of the, the Yetzirah? I think it could be a component of the Yitzhar Hara. I, I think Judaism very much buys into the idea of not only do we have free will, but we have the opportunity to choose what we do. We have our animalistic side and our intellectual side, and part of our, our Yitzhar Hara, our desire to do ill, is to allow our animalistic side to run free and unchecked. At the same time, I think that it's more than that. I think that there, there are, you know, little indiscretions that we allow ourselves in life, little mistakes, right? So I'm trying to be good and I'm trying to be on a diet, but I give in and I have a couple cookies. That's a Yetzir Hara but it isn't really hurting anybody. On the flip side, the idea of going out and murdering or going out and uh, destroying <coughs> an, excuse me, a nation is a very different kind of perspective. And, and to throw it back to you, you talked a lot about the individual, but I would ask you what we know about groups that act in this way. In other words, um, groupthink, the idea of groups acting and, and not necessarily feeling like any one individual has to take responsibility for the actions of the group. Um, and so whether we're talking about Amalek or whether we're talking about um, people who are storming the capital of the United States, maybe there's some groupthink there and some lack of responsibility from individuals. Um, and, and how do we see that? I love it. Uh, groupthink, I, I will very boldly say, 
is not a good thing. Uh, and why will I say that so boldly? Because every reason that you just described, groupthink. And even more so than that, I would argue that even some of the things that we think in our own estimations are noble things still perhaps not such a good thing if you haven't thought for yourself about the merits of yes or no is this something that's right for me to do and i think that absolutely when there's a group and you can almost get rid of any individual responsibility we've seen time and again that that is never uh, a positive that's never something that's led to wonderful things um and even we could even go back to to noah right how do we how do we end noah we had groupthink we said let's build the tower not a good plan um the the only times that i think that we can even look, or rather not the only times, but that was that was one example of when it's not a positive. And even in in Parsha Bo, when the the Mitzrim start to say to Paro, hey, this is this isn't working out the way we planned, the way you had wanted, we see how having more individual thought can turn out to be a much more important way to run your life now i guess the question that follows that would be well what about the individual who potentially starts the group who initiates the process uh getting back to again is this a an, an inherently evil person or is it an inherently misguided person or is it someone who quite frankly is just not sending the message that we want them to send. And I think you can hear as I'm trending with, with these thoughts where it ultimately falls, which is not always so clear-cut, this is a bad in the classical sense, but rather certainly misguided, certainly distorted. And as that trend continues, if left unchecked, it can lead to worse and worse. So I'm going to invariably kind of combine these pieces where the Yetzer may be, have a cookie. It's okay, have a cookie. Similarly, we see it may be, oh, this is an okay idea. This is all right. This is good. And we see that that invariably may lead to more and more distorted thoughts, more and more... Uh, depraved ideas and then if you have other people who are listening and not questioning then terrible things can happen so perhaps that's the transition of how we get to Amalek in the first place interesting thank you for listening if you'd like to reach us you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.